Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode we speak to Joanne Harris, the author of Chocolat. So again this was an interview we conducted via Skype so apologies for any glitches with the sound quality. It was a wide-ranging conversation. We talked to her about her career, the world beyond Chocolat as well as the huge success of that book, her wide reading and also her interest in Norse mythology. It was a fantastic um, episode. She was incredibly good to speak to about a whole range of things and she was very honest um, about things including her finances. So we hope you enjoy it. Well, listen, thanks thanks so much for, for finding time at uh, particularly what sounds like a, a very busy uh, time for you. Your book's coming out in, in two days, is that right? Yeah, that's right, on Thursday. That's fantastic, that must be so exciting. Yeah, it'll be fun. So what we'd like to do, if that's okay, is sort of start um, with with some sort of questions about your, your early life and your, your way into writing and then, then move forward from there. So could you tell us a bit about what it was like growing up bilingual and what um, what impact that had on your on your writing? Well, you know, I don't have much of a point of comparison. My mother is French. My father is English. French was my first language because my mother didn't speak English when she came to England. I learned English when I went to school. I think inevitably I had perhaps a slightly different view of what different cultures were like because I was part of two cultures, but I was always, wherever I went in the world, at least half a foreigner. Um, But I think it gave me an interesting perspective on how communities work, particularly the kind of community that I lived in, which was not at the time what you'd call cosmopolitan. and it gave me an insight into the literature and poetry and art and, and um, the general traditions of two reasonably different cultures. And so I think, it, if anything, it was it was um, it contributed to my interest in in reading and writing and stories. Did you grow up reading sort of stories in, in both languages? I know I've got a my best friend is half French and she grew up adoring Asterix and Obelisk and, and a whole load of, of French comics and she said there just wasn't uh, their equal in, in English. Yes, I read in French as well as I did in English um, and from an early age. I didn't read comics though, I wasn't allowed to read comics. Oh, oh how come? I don't know, my parents didn't approve, I don't think. There were an awful lot of things that I wasn't allowed to read. What, what else? I, I couldn't read a horror or fantasy or sci-fi. Um, well, I did, of course, inevitably, but uh, they, they weren't supposed to... Um, I wasn't supposed to have them in the house. I think my, my mother felt that they were somehow trivial or, or not uh, not good, and so I, I was supposed to read what my parents considered to be serious literature, which, of course, inevitably sent me the way of, of reading all kinds of things that I knew I wasn't supposed to read. And... Um, that kind of probably explains why the first novel that I wrote was a horror novel. And your your earliest ventures into writing creatively for yourself, were they in French or were they in English? No, I've always written in English. Mm. I don't know why. Do you think you could it's, write in French? Yes, I could and I have done, but I'm just not motivated to. Interesting. Okay. I think it's it's just I think it's part of the, the brain function that governs writing. It seems to be predominantly the English part of the brain. But I have done journalism in French and I have done the odd few things for, for different publications, but it's it's not something that I'm particularly drawn to do. 
So your first kind of your early um, career, you did a few different jobs, you know, accountancy and, and um, you were a teacher for a little while. Did you always sort of have writing on the side and how did writing sort of begin to, to take over? It didn't take over. I wrote as a hobby until it became impossible for me to do two things at once. Um, I would have been totally okay keeping on teaching. I'd been a teacher for 15 years. I was good at it. Um, and I had three books published while I was a teacher. And I think if there had been no moment at which one of the books was so successful that I actually had to had to give up teaching, I'd probably have stayed a teacher and would have written books as a kind of sideline, the way I had for, for, for some years. Okay. It was just that the, the, the business of juggling two jobs mm. becomes difficult if one of them... Mm is suddenly and unexpectedly successful. I was going to say, how did you sort of juggle um, your your writing life? How did you fit it in? Were you sort of, did you Same out? way you fit in anything else you want to do. Same way I would have fitted in squash or sheepdog trialing or going out or having another hobby. Mm. I used the time that was available. I say these things because some of my colleagues at school had precisely those hobbies and they fitted them into their job and, and it was just fine. I think the thing about writing books is that unless you're on a deadline, and I wasn't because I wasn't successful enough to have deadlines, um, you can write at whatever speed you like um, and in whatever time's available. <laughs> so I did, I just did that. I wasn't particularly expecting to... Um, to be more successful than my first two books had been. And it, it came as a big surprise when my third book was, was just unexpectedly popular. And that meant that I had to do touring, that I had to, um, I had to do promotion, all sorts of things that I'd never done before. And so I had a look at my, my day job. And by then, Chocolat had been such a success that there were people actually turning up members of the press turning up at the school and trying to doorstep me there and I thought right this is this is untenable I have to quit at least for a while to see what happens with this and so I took a year's sabbatical um, fully expecting to go back and of course I never did because once you've uh, once you've kind of opened that particular box then there's no going back into it could you tell us just just winding backwards a little bit about the the mechanics of of getting your first books published? How did you go about getting an agent, getting a publisher? What was what was that process like for you? Because you were in your mid twenties when your first novel came out. Yes, that's right. Um, well, I, I did everything a very boring way. I decided that initially, having tried to contact publishers without an agent with no success, I realised that I needed an agent. Mm -hmm. Got myself a copy of the Writer's Handbook phoned every agent in the book um, who would talk to me and finally managed to get one of them to take me on. After which point, um, it took another two years for me to find a publisher because it does, I think, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a given, um, during which time I'd written another book. My first two books were published by different publishing houses because they were slightly different books and I think in those days as now, People quite liked the idea that you would follow up your first book by another one that was almost exactly the same. And I already knew that that wasn't going to be the way I did things. And so and so it was a kind of slow process. But yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much what I did. There was a lot of rewriting, a lot of rejection, a lot of uh, slightly frustrating toing and froing between um, different people. But yeah, 
it still works that way, really. Although nowadays people have got more more options and they have self-publishing as an option, which which might well have been something that I would have looked at at the time if it had existed in the way that it does now. Mm. When you uh, when you first got your agent, what stage was was your manuscript at? I mean, were you working on what was going to become your first novel, or was, and what what stage was the text at? When, when I had a finished first draft. Okay. I don't think it's sensible to go to an agent without a finished first draft if you want them to take you seriously, because I think agents are not really looking for a reason to take you on. They're looking for a reason to reject you. And the fact that you don't have a finished manuscript and you may be the kind of person who never does finish the manuscript, I think is possibly a bit turn-off for some agents. And so I think that anybody wanting to, to interest an agent, any first novelist, who is not already a celebrity or somebody who the agent has heard of, ought to make their approach with something as close to a finished draft as they can, even though they may well have to rewrite it for the agent and later possibly for um, for any editors that get involved. But agents don't like to, to read unfinished novels generally. They, they like to feel that there is something solid there. What has um, your relationship with your agent, ha- have you sort of stayed with them and have you found that those relationships you've had with your um, agent or agents, as may be the case, and with your editors, have they kind of contributed to what um, you've written or have you always kind of more um, done your own thing as you've, you've already hinted at a little bit? Well, it's not really the job of an agent to tell you how to write or what to write. Most agents are not writers. Um, their Their job is to identify somebody who might be interested in publishing your book and to try and put your book the way of somebody who will love it. Um, so no, none of my agents have contributed to to what I've written. Um, occasionally one of them has, has, you know, asked a question and has said, you know, perhaps you should make this clearer, but they're not there to edit that. That's not really their job. Um, I think with my editors, there's there's been inevitably there's had to be a reasonably close relationship I think you you have to have an editor who believes in you and who knows what you're doing and who likes it um, and an editor that you can trust because I think if you know if you are going to rely on somebody to to edit your work you've got to feel that they have something worth saying um, and that they have insights that you can use and that will help you so I've had um, I've had a few editors um, and a few agents, in fact. I've not stayed with my first agent who's died. Um, I then got another agent who has also died. Uh, both of them were pretty old. It's not like as a curse on me or anything that I kill agents, but uh, I'm now with an agent who, who I knew when I was at, at college who, um, who I go, get on very well with because I, I know what he's like. I've known him for years. And I think with, with agents, you have to, again, like with editors, you have to have confidence in them. And you have to believe that they believe in you and that they're not just monetizing something that they think is going to make a profit for them, that they actually see something in your work that's different and that's that's interesting and that's worth pushing. Um, I think anybody choosing an agent or anybody working with an editor needs to needs to actually look at that relationship and, and understand that it's going to be an important relationship in your life and to make sure that it's built on a, a reasonably secure grounding and... Um, I think I've been pretty lucky with mine. Um, I'm very fond of my new editor at Orion because I've changed publishing houses after having been at Transworld for some time. Um, I had an editor at Transworld who was also 
very supportive. Um, but I do know people who, who lose editors every six months, and it can be a very soul-destroying thing because it's, you know, you're you're losing, if that happens, you're losing your most supportive relationship mm. in writing. And, and that can be quite a traumatic thing if you've got a book going. And at what stage in your writing process do you... Is, is your agent or your editor your first reader, or does someone read it before then? At what stage do you... Do you make the private public, and has that changed over your your career? No, I usually try to find something that that everybody is comfortable with. At the moment, um, my new editor is is working on a principle quite similar to that of my first editor, whereby I send her the manuscript in chunks. I've just sent her 150 pages, and... She was so excited by it that she said, well, could you send me it in 50-page chunks after that? And I'm perfectly happy to do that. That would be what I would consider to be a kind of dirty first draft, mm. which might require a fair bit of tinkering. Um, in the past, I haven't done that with everybody. Some people have wanted to have a completed manuscript, in which case I send them a reasonably clean first draft. It, it just depends at what point they want to get involved. Um, I am okay either way. Usually my first drafts are reasonably clean, uh, which means that usually, because most of the time I don't need an awful lot of line-by-line editing, what I usually need is structural editing or things to be fleshed out or things to be cut out if, if they end up being a bit baggy. And so sometimes it's quite nice to work with an editor from a reasonably early stage in the manuscript, as long as you don't feel that, that that's going to be intrusive to your process. I know a lot of people who would never think of sending... 50 pages of an unpublished mm. book to an editor because, you know, it, it would make them uncomfortable. Mm. Usually editors are pretty pretty good at determining what what authors will like and what they won't like and, and what they can work with. It seems to me, I find it very interesting hearing you speak about um, your own kind of self-knowledge of your writing and, and what you prefer and um, needing structural um work or, or help from your editor and, and, and so on and so forth is this something that you've always known about your writing and about how you've written and how you um and your style or is this something that you've kind of developed and, and learned more as you've written um more books well i think that inevitably as i write more books i become more self-aware about the process and i also realize that the the things that people are more, more likely to comment on than others and and so, yeah, I think I've become, I've become much more self-critical, certainly, which is a good thing. And, and I've become more, more aware of the things that I need to think about mm. in terms of the editorial process. Mm. Everybody has things. Everybody has some weakness or something that they know is, is going to be more of a problem than other things. And some people it's dialogue. With some people it's characterization. With me, it tends to be structure and timelines. Um, which are things that I tend to tinker about with a lot more than I do the kind of stylistic or line-by-line stuff. Um, so if I do tinker around with, with something, um, very often it's, it's quite um, it's a structural process. Could you tell us a bit about the experience of those early novels, so pre-Chocolat, in terms of the reception and in terms of you know how how they did? Well, they were they were both. Um, Effectively, first novels with those publishing houses. The first one, The Evil Seed, was um, a paperback original, and it was um, it was published by Warner, and um, 
I don't really know what they thought they were doing with it. Um, they weren't sure whether it was supposed to be literary or genre, and so they didn't really publish it as either. Um, they printed 2,000 copies of it, and it sank without trace. Um, the next one was published by Arrow, and it was called Sleep Pale Sister, and it was a kind of it was a kind of Victorian ghost story, um, sort of a little bit on the lines of, of Affinity by Sarah Waters in some ways, but but ten years earlier, fifteen years earlier, and again nobody quite knew what it was. They they didn't know if it was supposed to be genre or whether it was supposed to be literary, um, and so they put this this nice pre-Raphaelite cover on it and sent it out into the world. And pretty much the same thing happened. It sank without trace. In neither case was there any promotion. Um, I remember asking the, the publishers for Sleep Pills as to what the promotion budget was going to be. And when the laughter subsided, um, the, the publisher said, well, you know, we might be able to run to a few phone calls and a book of stamps, yeah. which was kind of what happened in those days. If you weren't known, then there was, there was no promotion at all. I don't think there was even a press release, and certainly there weren't any, um, uh, there weren't any reviews. Um, I'm not quite sure what they expected was going to happen, but the inevitable happened. Um, I got what they call a, a cult readership, which means that, that it was largely unread. I did get a few nice letters from people who somehow found out my address, but um, you know, it was a good job I didn't decide to give up my day job at that point because it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked out. Mm. That must have been incredibly dispiriting. And that sort of, I suppose, brings us to um, your next book, which this was, you know, 1999, and um, you write um, Chocolat. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your experience of, of writing and then having that published? Did it feel very different from your, your, your sort of earlier books? Not really, and it wasn't dispiriting. I wasn't expecting great things. I wasn't expecting to give up teaching to be a writer. Um... I was curious as to what the publication process would be. I was very happy at seeing my books in print, but you know, I wasn't expecting to sell squillions of copies. And um, and it seemed to me that I'd found a nice a nice kind of pattern whereby I would write a book with no sense of expectations and no deadlines, um, and then I would find somebody to to publish it, and it would come out quietly, and that would be that. Um, with Chocolat, it was slightly different because. In those days, and, and to a certain extent nowadays too, there was this kind of two strikes and you're out thing. And I had written these two books and neither of them had been especially successful. After which point it became quite difficult for me to find anybody to publish me at all. And so I wrote several things, um, books that later came out um, after Chocolat. And, and nobody seemed that interested. And my um, my agent, whose name was Richard Golner, um, was getting a bit twitchy and he wanted to he wanted to find out why my books weren't selling in America because he had this idea that America was the secret to everything and that if I could somehow get an American audience then then I would be I would be made and so he sent one of my then manuscripts off um, to his uh, his co-partner in New York this guy called Albert Zuckerman who had written a book called how to write the blockbuster novel um, and and basically it, it was sort of dear Al, read this manuscript, this is my client she'd really like to, to break into American publishing um, what should she do and so I got this 30 page letter back from Albert Zuckerman 
saying, well, yeah, you can write, but you're completely doing the wrong thing. Um, nobody wants to read about the stuff that you're writing about. Um, so you're going to have to start from scratch. And and he, he said a lot of things which which I took into account in a, a kind of kind of negative way. And he said, well, first of all, nobody wants to read about villages in Europe. Uh, you need to set your action in a city, and there's got to be a lot more action. And you know, would it kill you to have a car chase or a fist fight? And and um, and you write too much about old people. Um, instead, you know, they should be young, attractive American people having fist fights and car chases and having lots of sex because there's no sex in your book. And and you know, what's that about? Um, and also, I don't understand why you keep writing about food, because, you know, if you want to write a cookbook, get it out of your system. But otherwise, you know, none of this stuff is going to work. And so much of my upbringing, I guess, has been spent rebelling against one person or another. You know, my first book was a horror novel for a reason. This was because I wasn't allowed to read horror novels. Um, and so I basically wrote a book as a kind of response to Al Zuckerman. And I set it in a little village in France, and I filled it with old people, and put a whole bunch of food in there, and and it became chocolat. Um, and it did rather well, really, considering that it was the sort of thing that he'd said would never never sell, which is kind of a, it's a case in point. Sometimes people don't know that much, even though they they're in a position to give you advice. But no, I, I mean I wrote it entirely for my own pleasure. I didn't write it to to make a lot of, uh, of impact because I'd been told that that kind of thing wouldn't have any impact. And so when it did, and all of a sudden it was being published in all these different countries, it, it all came as a bit of a shock to me. And I thought, okay, now what? Um, and I fully intended to go on teaching and to do what I'd been doing before. But then the momentum became so so ridiculous. And, and um, you know, there was this movie around, around the corner about to happen. And, and I thought, well... Now I'm going to have to do something. So, so I took a, a sabbatical from teaching. Um, I wanted to take three weeks off, but the head wouldn't let me. <laughs> so I took a year. And, and then I said, well, I'll come back afterwards. And then when all the dust has settled and I've done all this, um, this promotion that I'm being asked to do in different countries, then I'll just be able to come back and go, to, go back to teaching the way I did before. But it didn't work that way because it never does. Um, so it was. It, it, the decision was very much made for me. It would not have been sustainable for me to to keep writing the way I had been doing and and to and teach at the same time. It just wouldn't have been possible. The story you tell about um the this letter from this man in New York reminds me a lot of um I, I read a, an anniversary edition of Birdsong by Sebastian Fox who talked about just when he'd finished that he went to see I, I may be misquoting here but went to see his American publisher in New York who read the manuscript and said something like look no one's interested in the first world war and could you like make the main character a woman and all this kind of thing and he sort of walked out like feeling like the world had sort of fallen on his shoulders and then the book blew up <laughs> massively well this is it I, you know the, the, the... People in the trade sometimes fail to see what's in front of their eyes. Effectively, I mean, his, his book and mine both sold on word of mouth rather than any other way. Um, and very often, you know, the, the, the trade is so focused on their idea of what will sell that, that they don't realise that the public is not necessarily the public that they think it is. Sometimes the public surprises people. So who was it who first sort of took a chance and bought Chocolat? 
and sort of what was the Italians. Ah, okay. The Italians bought it first. It was very interesting. Um, They bought it and they published it something like nine months before the English. Um, It had been rejected by a number of English publishers and I got rave rejections. English publishers who were going, we really loved your book, but we don't know what it is and we don't know what to do with it, so we can't publish it. Um, and then and then the Italians kind of snapped it up and then all of a sudden everybody bought it. It was, it was an interesting thing. I think um, if the book hadn't come out in Italy as early as it had, then it might not have come out in England in the same way. They were certainly, they were hesitating about whether they would bring it out as literary fiction or whether it was supposed to be something else. They weren't sure whether they were going to bring it out as a hardback. They weren't sure how much promotion they were going to to give it. But it was so successful in Italy. Um, And they watched with with interest what was going on in Italy. And and there was just this huge interest and this appetite for the book. And, And I think it gave them the courage to to push something which at the time was quite different to what was popular and they, they felt they were taking a bit of a risk and this was trans world um, but no sometimes um, I, I think publishers particularly big publishers are quite risk averse mm. and so I think it's it did them some good to see how well it had done in another country and, and that meant that yes they brought it out in hardback they did give it a promotion budget um, they pushed it I think more than they they might have done if they'd been just kind of timidly trying something new out. And that was a good thing. What was the experience of the film like? And what level of... How did it come about? And what level of creative involvement did you have on that side? Um, well, the film rights were sold very much at the same time as the book rights. Um, most of the rights for that year were sold at the Frankfurt Book Fair. And what happens is that... Um, film companies send scouts off to to Frankfurt to look at the new books that are coming out, the new books that are being sold, and um, and to basically buy hundreds of options at very very cheap prices. A little bit like you might speculate in cheap shares in businesses you've never heard of, in the hope that those businesses will become big and successful, and then you'll be able to. Uh, to use your shares, and so they, they, they did this, and so they, they bought the the rights for Chocolat for a, a very small sum of money, um, on the understanding that if the movie got made, then I would get a percentage of the budget, that's usually how it works, um, and so they got it cheap, and it got, it got made, very surprisingly, um, most of these options don't get picked up, the movies don't get made, you might get one in 200 film options actually making a movie. And so to sell an option is, it's not as exciting as it sounds because it's a bit like saying, oh, I've, I've bought a lottery ticket. It doesn't mean you're going to win the lottery. It just means that you are in the draw, if you like. And, and I didn't really expect much to happen. And then things started happening and I thought, okay, well, this is, this is interesting. But knowing all the things that can go wrong with, with a movie and knowing that an awful lot of movies never really get past pre-production into production. I was just slightly afraid to pin my hopes on it, so I just I just let it happen. Um, and by the time, you know, by the time they started filming, I thought, okay, well, it's obviously it's going to, something's going to happen. 
But I didn't pay a lot of interest to it, not until basically people started coming and knocking on my door going, by the way, I'm in your movie, um, can we have a chat? But I didn't want any, any creative involvement. They did ask me at one point if I wanted to write the screenplay, and I said no, which was a very good decision because at the time I was still teaching. I had a four-year-old daughter. Uh, you know, what they thought I would be able to do um, with the movie script at the time, I'd never even read one, let alone written one. Um, and they would have expected me to keep flying off to L.A. to meetings and things, and it was just not feasible. So I said, no, no, please get somebody else to do it, which was fine. I mean, I was very happy for for somebody else to do it and to um, and just to have a kind of courtesy involvement, really. And so from time to time, somebody would ask me a question, somebody would drop me a line, and they kept me um, apprised of developments, which which was always fun. But it wasn't really my movie. I wasn't... I wasn't working on it. All my work was done by then. I could basically just enjoy the show, which which is exactly what I did. So then, you know, a, a year goes past. Um, you realise, presumably, that it's just not tenable for you to go back to your job um, and that you still want to keep on writing. And presumably you're dropped into a very different um, landscape um, to the one you'd been in before, you know, that you're suddenly much more of a, a known name and a much more of a known quantity. Did that, um, you know, what impact did that have on your on your writing life? Well, it meant I had more time. Other than that, it didn't have any impact. I wasn't, I wasn't really aware of any significant change. Bear in mind the fact that I live in Yorkshire, I don't live in London, um, unless I was out doing promotion I could pretty much just stay at home and, and work the hours that I wanted. Um, I'd kind of understood that it was a slightly different version of being a writer than I thought it was going to be. Um, you know, I, There was a lot more scrutiny um, than I'd been used to. And I'd kind of, I'd had so much of that during the movie. And, and, but then it tailed off after the movie because movies make for a certain level of publicity that books generally don't. And so I was quite happy to let that sort of simmer down and to get back to, to some sort of routine. And so I just kept writing. And by then, of course, by, by, by then I'd written another book, a couple more books, actually. Um, and so I was able for, for several years to, to bring out a book a year. And they all did. They all did very well. Um, but I think I was in much more, I was in a better place in terms of being able to control the path that I was on. Um, but there was a lot more promotion and a lot more travelling than I was expecting. And so I found that in terms of, of actually having time to write, um, I was still clawing back time in much the same way that I had when I'd been teaching full-time. It was just I was clawing back time from being a writer rather than from being a teacher. I was just going to ask, could you explain a bit about what, you know, what promotion or promoting a book involves for perhaps people who aren't, aren't familiar with it and maybe how that's changed a bit between when you started doing it and, and now? Yeah, I don't think it's changed at all. Um, promotion covers a whole load of different things and depending on the, the profile of the author, you may or may not get to do all of them. Um, you have things like readings, 
which tend to happen when a book comes out. And so usually for the two or three weeks around the launch of a book, um, you will do readings in bookshops, in libraries, at festivals, uh, sometimes at cons if you're a genre writer. Um, and you will generally read from your book, talk about your book, sign copies of your books. And so readings and signings is the baseline. Um, festivals are very, very common and very popular. Um, and then if you're published abroad, it's, it's very likely that foreign publishers will ask you to travel abroad and to do those things or something similar in their country. Now, all countries have a slightly different view of author promotion and so some countries love festivals, some countries just love signings, um, some countries will kind of do a big kind of press conference around you and that will be it. Um, but I was by then, um, after Chocolat, I was, I was published in something like 40 countries by then and so I was getting lots of invitations to go to festivals abroad to, um, to visit my foreign publishers and to to meet my foreign public and I, I found that at the time if I could keep it to about half a dozen or, or, or ten foreign visits a year then 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 I would still have some time to write but it, it was a big eater of my time and although it was great it was great fun and it was a very rewarding thing to do I was also aware that it wasn't writing and that it wasn't what my publishers were actually paying me to do. Did it make an, an impact on um, the advances that you were getting and the kind of financial control you were able to have over your contracts and um, and, and and sort of over your you know the percentages you were getting for for books and so on and so forth? Well, that was usually up to my agent to negotiate. But you know, if you've had a bestseller, then you're in a better position to negotiate a decent contract for yourself for the next book, inevitably. Um, so yeah, I mean. You kind of move into a different league if, if your book has been a bestseller. Um, you, you can then reasonably expect to be paid more for the next one, and then the same goes for the next one. And so, but yeah, my, my agent sorted that out. That's why you have agents, um, they're there to, to look at those things and to decide what's reasonable, what's feasible, and, and what will not disrupt your relationship with your publisher because. You, know, you, you want to have a relationship with your publisher. It's not just about getting as much money out of them as possible. It's also looking at a balance between your advance and whether that will recoup on sales. Do you feel you've ever <coughs> kind of lived in the shadow of Chocolat or has it cast any kind of... Do you feel it's still... You know, We're asking you about Chocolat. You presumably get asked about it a lot. Does that ever become Actually, a little no, bit... No, I don't. Okay. Very, very seldom nowadays. Sometimes I do. Um, in foreign countries, I sometimes do. Um, over here, most people have moved on. Most people will talk to me about the current book because there have been so many of them. Mm. But yeah, I'm still totally happy to talk about Chocolat and I'm still really happy that people people still like it. It's been nearly 20 years. Um, every other book that I've written has also been a bestseller, so I don't feel that I have been overshadowed. Although... You know, inevitably there will be people who will only know Chocolat because you get a certain kind of readership who who might not read a book by you unless there was a movie because they're drawn in by the movie and then they'll read the book. And that, that's just fine. But no, I don't feel any kind of overshadowing here because you know, I've moved into so many different things and I've got a very accepting public. I've got I've got readers who are 
you know, very happy to to follow me into different directions, which is which is why I've taken so many different directions. Mm. We were going to sort of follow up on on the the various um, different directions you've been into since um, in our next questions, you know, you've, you've done sort of short stories and, and, um, and cookbooks and, and young adults and, 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 and all of it. Have you, um, has that been sort of rewarding? Why is it that you've been drawn to these different genres? And, and you already talked a little bit about how accepting your readership is. Um, have you had any pushback on that at all? No, I haven't. Um, I think there are people who have liked certain things that I've done better than others, but, you know, I've got a very broad readership, actually. I'm aware when I, um, when I go to readings and when I see readers, it's clear that there are some people who will read anything that I write, whatever it is, and obviously will have their favourites, but whatever the next thing is, they'll read it because they want to try. And then there are some people who will only read the thrillers and some people who will only read the books set in France, and some people who will only read the fantasy novels. Um, but that's okay too. You know, I'm not there to tell them what to read. Um, and, and I'm very happy that, that there's this fairly broad spectrum of different people who all like different things. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, um, I don't feel that I really change direction at all. I think what I do is I move in a kind of elliptical orbit around a number of different areas of writing. Um, and there's a kind of separation of four or five years between each time I visit any particular kind of little satellite. And so I'll write a thriller every four or five years. I'll, I'll write a, a fantasy book every four or five years. And then there are some other things, some some kind of odd little isolated projects that I'll just do because they feel like fun. And I'll just do them because I'm trying something new. Would your cookbooks fall into that category? No, not really. Um, I, I kind of, the cookbooks were something else. I didn't want to write cookbooks. I'd said that I wouldn't write cookbooks. But there were so many people asking me if, if you know, they could have recipes that I decided that eventually, if, if, if that was going to be the case... And my agent was also very keen on my writing a cookbook, so I said, okay, I'll co-write it with a, a cookbook writer because, you know, that way uh, the whole business of weights and measures and photography will be covered by somebody who's already done it and who does it professionally. And I will give all the money to charity, and that will be a good thing. And that way people will, will get off my case about the recipes. Um, but I didn't want to be a, a celebrity chef. I didn't want to do TV I didn't want to do any of those things. It wasn't like I was moving into chefdom. It was, for me, it was a way of doing something that would be, that would be useful. Um, giving the money off to charity and, and therefore kind of taking the curse off something that I thought was, would otherwise have felt a bit like I was kind of freeloading on the success of the novels. I didn't want to do that. It wasn't like that. And it doesn't take me long to write the text of a cookbook. So it was, it was just a way of, you know, I gave the money to MSF and that was, that was good. And they sent me off to the Congo and I saw what they were doing there. And I got lots of adventures and lots of stories out of it, which was a great thing. But, you know, I never wanted to go into cookbook writing permanently. And, and I, I don't think that I would want to write another one. I've written three and that's, that's plenty. So moving on to the book that's coming out in two days' time, it's sort of returning to um, 
you know, a, a group of stories that um, are, are very old and very well known and that you've written about before. Could you tell us a little bit about um, your new book first off and then also what sort of attracted you to um, Norse mythology? Well, you know, I've been, I've been reading and writing about Norse mythology ever since I was a kid. Um, the first unpublished book that I wrote was effectively a version of the first book in this series. It was, um, it was the story of a world after Ragnarok, where the Norse gods had mostly been forgotten, but were still kind of hanging around, uh, much reduced in power and... And having to face up to the fact that there was now a new religion that had taken over and that the world had moved on without them. And, and it was an immensely long book. It was about 2,000 pages long. And I tried to sell it when I was about 19 and, and couldn't find anybody who was interested, couldn't find a publisher who was interested, partly because it was too long. It was too... They, did, they didn't know whether it was an adult book or a, a kid's book, um, I said that it was a crossover book, and I was 20 years too too early for a crossover book to make sense. It did. Crossover fiction didn't exist in those days. Um, and so I kind of shelved it. And then when my daughter grew to be of an age where I thought she might be interested in the stories that I had been interested in at her age, I read her this book, and she really liked it and said, well, why hasn't it been published? And I said, well, probably because it's not publishable. And she said, well, just write it again. And so I did. Um, I took the, the central premise and ditched most of the rest of it and, and rewrote it as, as rune marks, which was about ooh, about 12 years ago now, maybe, maybe a little longer, maybe about 15 years ago. And so that was the first of, of the books in this series. Um, and the one that's, that's being published now, The Testament of Loki, is, is the fourth. Except that they're not really in order that way. They, they, the, the rune marks and rune light um, are set after Ragnarok, whereas the Gospel of Loki and the Testament of Loki are set kind of before the events um, that happen in those books. And you can read them all separately, although they all fit in to the same kind of universal picture. So it's, it's a series of four books that, that actually can be read in any order at all. Could you tell us a bit about your use of social media as a writer, how you got into that and um, you know, what you think is, is good and useful about it and perhaps what some of the pitfalls are about it as well? Well, I got into it the way a lot of writers do, I suppose, because um, you know, in this business you tend to, to be quite solitary and you make friends with, with other writers, but you don't necessarily see much of them. And so it's quite nice to have contact with people that you know and you like, but you may not get to see much of. I think a lot of a lot of actors are the same. They work with, with people um, for a fortnight, for a month, and then they don't see them for years, and they, they stay in touch on social media. Um, I think which is why um, so many actors and writers are on Twitter, actually. It's, it's, Twitter seems to be a much more water-cooler, conversational medium than some other social media and I, I was kind of drawn to it partly for that reason um, I don't use it much in terms of wanting to promote books because I don't think it works that way I don't think it's particularly interesting to read about somebody promoting their book and so I don't do all that much of it but I have used it too to tell stories 
to have discussions, to find out information, to canvas opinions, to stay in touch with colleagues, and just basically to have fun. I think, you know, when I was when I was a teacher, I had a staff room in which I rarely spent much time, but I used to just pop in there, make some tea, uh, read half a page of the paper, say hello to a few people, and then go off to the next lesson. Well, I, I kind of treat Twitter in the same way, because to me it's quite important to to have a level of human stimulus and interaction going on, which you can lose if you're a writer and, and you're just sort of immured in your workroom all the time. Um, and I don't think that would be good for me as a writer. I think I've always been the kind of person who who got ideas from being around other people. I thought your your ten tweets series is is very interesting, and I've, I've followed with with sort of great interest some of the quite um, feisty exchanges that you've had with people coming on there. And I suppose if you could tell us a bit about that, and perhaps also you know where you see social media fitting for writers with the kind of current Me Too moment with uh, notions of sexism in the literary industry and stuff like that as well well social media is is just another means of creating groups um discussion groups social groups pressure groups um i think it's at its best it can be a valuable tool for enlightenment and protest and raising of awareness obviously it also has a kind of downside whereby anybody with an opinion however toxic is able to express it on social media and that's something that people need to be aware of and are aware of um but you know most of most of social media has fail safes which means that you can block or mute people or otherwise distance yourself from them if they're being toxic and i think it's important for everybody's sanity to know when to do that not to get too too irate about online confrontations because you know that there's life is just a little short and answering every single troll and correcting every single troll's grammar is probably not the best usage of your time one thing that we um, always are really interested in is how people go about um planning um their books or, or how they start writing them and we have uh, we found sort of there have been two broad camps uh, one uh, of which are plotters who kind of plot out every moment of their book and the other are, are plungers who just dive straight in do you uh, have a do you feel that you fit into one of those camps or the other i don't do a great deal of architectural plotting um i think what I quite enjoy about the process of writing a book is the the levels of uncertainty and, and the discoveries that you make along the way. So I think sort of an important part of my process is not necessarily knowing how everything is going to happen. Obviously, even people who do just plunge into writing a book have some sort of idea what they're writing, because if they don't, the book's not going to be much good. But... I, I do like to, to feel my way through a book rather than to know exactly what's going to happen because I think that particularly when I'm writing a book that requires surprises and reversals and things to to actually take the reader by surprise, I think if you are, as a writer, also taken a little by surprise, then you're, you're much more likely to, to, to have an impact on the reader 
And so I, I don't like to know too much in advance. I mean, I will know more or less the general shape of the story. Um, and I usually have an idea of some of the key scenes, but but no, it's it's not it's not an architectural plan. And, and you know, sometimes I do find that I have no idea how a book's going to end. Um, and generally, I'll, I'll I'll have a moment where around the middle of the book, I'll think, well, you know, I did, how is this book going to end? Where is it even going? Uh, it can be a little stressful, but I think also because it's part of the it's part of the process that I like, the, the actual, the, the, the sense of discovery. And you can pull things in that are happening to you at the time. And I think with me, because a lot of my books are born from things which have been influential to me, or things that have happened to me, or things that have happened to people around me, or things that are happening in the world around me, those things are not always predictable. And their impact on the book isn't always predictable either. Um, and so I kind of like to leave plenty of fluidity there for those things to, to find their place within the finished work. We hope you enjoyed that now. A, a, sweet, a swift update from us, Simon. Uh, I have finished my book. Um, or, well, I've turned in the last section, or to be more accurate, the rewrite of the last section. Hooray! Hooray. Uh, and it was your birthday? It was my birthday as well, so all sorts of celebrations. Uh, so now all that remains is the uh, small task of cutting a third from the manuscript, but that's going to be fine. Cassia, what about you? What about you? <laughs> uh, cutting a third. Casual, casual. Um, I have got the proof uh, copy on my desk um, just behind me as we speak so I'm going through that uh, with an eagle eye um, particularly since when I opened it at the very first uh, the title page um, I had my name um, uh, misspelled um, so Not ideal. I'm now being extra extra careful that's the proof of Cassie's new book we should say yes yes uh, which is coming out um, October 4th which is very exciting so yeah I'm going through that um, which is really it's a really fun process to see a scrappy word document get turned into something that even as an, a, a sheaf of A4 pages looks a lot more like a book. It's very, it's a very pleasing thing. Uh, anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producers are Olivia Krellin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Zora Hankier looks after our social media. Jess Danheiser has um, done our school. And our graphic design was by James Edgar. And you can find us on all manner of social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And our crowdfunding page is patreon.com slash always take notes. Website. Website is alwaystakenotes.com. <laughs> and if you've enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave a review on iTunes or, as above, contribute to our crowdfunding page. It really helps. Thank you so much.